When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. $419 million. That's how much college dropout Mike Fata sold his consumer company Manitoba Harvest for in 2019. In his early 20s, Mike lost a ton of weight and he focused on hemp seeds as a healthy fat product that more people should consume. He scaled the company out of Canada into the United States to over 100 million in sales. I mean, I'm talking little packets of seeds making over $100 million a year. And we interview him on our podcast. So in this interview, Mike is gonna cover the best advice he has for young entrepreneurs, how he built his business to $400 million and a bunch of other funny moments that I think you'll love. Enjoy. What is up, everybody? This is an episode of the Our Future podcast. We are the number one entrepreneurship show for young people. And the reason I say that is because Simi and I sold our media company to Morning Brew in our early 20s. We scrapped something together, we got that early win, and now we're trying to help other entrepreneurs get that little nugget of success as a young person. So Mike isn't necessarily young, but when you consider the size of his accomplishment, it comes at a very young age. Mike, we're super stoked to have you. And the first question I wanna ask you is, and just like talk with you about is, you lost 100 pounds of your body weight before you built your first company. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, Well, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, that's what uh, started me out as an entrepreneur is I got sick and tired of being sick and tired, being a 300-pound teenager uh, at 18 years old and started this whole health kick, which was a 100-pound weight loss journey. And now I've been 25 years in health, but that's what got me into the health food business and really interested in hemp seed. Well, you're the opposite of me. Cause like for me, it was like, okay, I'm going to sell my company and then I'm going to get really fit. So I've lost, I'm excited to say on this podcast, I've lost 20 pounds in the past seven weeks or sorry. Yeah. Seven weeks, about two months. And, uh, it's been amazing. And it's something that I always delayed, but I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to start a new company after this and I'm, I would need to be physically disciplined and I need to look great. Because I'll probably be able to raise more money too, you know? It's just going to help yeah. in all the different ways. I mean, ways. hey, you know, I, I think about being entrepreneurship is like uh, being an athlete. You know, the, the, the better conditioning, the better shape you're in, the better you're going to do in the stressful times and in the grinding times. And that's why I love the health food business. If you're aligning your personal passion with your business passion, you're always on, always on to health, you know, and, uh, mm-hmm. and that'll serve you well. Well, here's the thing, right? Like health, wellness, those are all of the hype, the buzz right now. But you were early, right? You were decades ahead of everyone else. So how did you fall in this company and now having exited for $400, almost $20 million, which is crazy? Yeah, I think it was uh, it was it was the hard way, you know. I'd love to say that I was a uh, I knew what I was doing, but I just became passionate about health. When I started losing the weight, I was addicted. I was like feeling better every day, so I went to the gym more, working out more, started educating myself about you know just different diets and different lifestyles, which um, I've continued on. That's a super interest for me. Yeah. Um, but when I when I discovered the hemp seed, uh, not only two things: one, hemp seeds taste really good. You know, I never knew that before, but kind of like a 
cross between a sunflower seed and a pine nut, this, this wonderful nutty flavor and super packed with protein and essential fats. And I just thought the world was going to change. People were, were scared of fat at that time. And that was, that was the start for me too, is like this fat free diet. And I thought things are going to change from the no fat diet to the right fat diet. And that was, you know, bleeding edge or early thinking, but look now, like, you know, butter's back in coconut oils in all these healthy fats are back in 25 years later. But I just saw that vision, you know, really early. I feel like carbs are more or less the big enemy nowadays, right? Like that's kind of the the big demonized yeah, food category. Yeah, and it was. I, I think these go through cycles, you know. Like now, it's it's. Uh, well, I mean, keto's coming off, but uh, you know, it was Atkins back in the day. You guys well, maybe too, Atkins, too young to understand. Yeah, that Atkins guy like licensed his name in like American grocery stores, and I'm pretty sure I don't know if you've heard of this, but like the business is doing hundreds of millions of dollars a year with a range of keto products. Yeah, under and the went, name Atkins, it, they 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 blew up uh, like twenty years ago, and then it went bankrupt, and then it got bought by another yeah. private equity company, and then yeah, they're just using that. But I, but the Atkins diet or the low carb diet was just repackaged a couple different ways, and and yeah. uh, South Beach but, diet, they called it the South, the South Beach, Beach diet, yeah, too. yeah, yeah looking South all Beach cut too. over there in Miami, yeah. Yeah, but I think more and more now than ever, especially through COVID, like people are more serious about their health, right? Like understanding, yeah. hey life just doesn't feel as good when you're, when you're not healthy and, uh, and you could do something about it. Most of it's what you put in your mouth, but, uh, there's a lot of other things you could do to, uh, to increase your health. And I've just been geeking out on that for the last like couple decades. You're not a 100%. business guy though, by trade, right? Like you didn't go and get an MBA. You're not out here just hustling, creating a ton of businesses. It was like this trend you saw and you jumped into it. So like tactically, what did that look like for you? Like, you know, you're, you're jumping into your first business. How do you capitalize on it? Yeah. Uh, no, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not an MBA. If I, if I got an MBA, I probably would have never started a hemp food business in 1998. <laughs> the I, I was a high school dropout. I, I dropped out of school when I was 14, started working. So I had like five or six years of work under my belt before I, sure. uh, before I started the business. So I knew I knew, and there was construction work. So I knew how to get a job done. I knew how to, I, I knew how to you know organize myself day to day to do work and make money. Um, but the business was, was all new and, and I just, I was so obsessed with learning about business when I got into business, like executing the business and then learning about it is what I tell a lot of entrepreneurs. It's like you're working full time and you're going to school at night. You know, if you love that, then you're probably going to like being an entrepreneur because there's always something to figure out. And, and, and I just remember when I walked into my first health food store and I said, how does this all work? Like, where do all these products come from and how do we get our chance? And, you know, fast forward and, and, you know, we became experts at that, but it was just one step at a time and, and, and super interested and curious about learning how the industry worked and yeah. you know, how, how to bring our products to market. Mike, who gave you your first break? You know, I think the great thing is I had a, a number of first breaks. The first first break was um, after being in one health food store in in, in Winnipeg, in, in my hometown. Um, I went to a show, a consumer show, and, and over the weekend uh, met a lot of people and sold a bunch of product. But uh, John Holtman, who was the owner of a seven-store health food chain in Winnipeg, so the biggest, the biggest health food chain in, in Manitoba here, was at the show and said, all my customers are coming over and telling me that they just bought your bag of hemp seeds and, and I got to sell your products in the store. And so not only did John uh, get us into then, you know, his seven stores, but he became a mentor of mine and even one of my first shareholders. So I'd say that's probably the, was the first big break for me. What was Manitoba's suite of products? And like, how did people consume, that, consume them in everyday life? Yeah, um, the biggest, so uh, of a $100 million business, the, the lion's share of it was hemp hearts, which hemp hearts is the soft inner kernel of the hemp seed, so remove the shell. 
um, sold in a pouch and, and um, used to sprinkle on top of salad, cereal, and yogurt were the top three uses. You can use it in smoothies and baking. It's, it's very versatile, but <clears throat> that was the product and that, and that was the usage. But we innovated over the years to try all these different things. We made uh, hemp protein powders. Uh, we made cold-pressed hemp seed oil. We made uh, hemp milk and then, and then a line of non-dairy beverages. Uh, we put hemp seeds into granola bars and, and made a line of, of hemp bars uh, and cereals as well. Um, so there was, a, there was a number of things that were innovated when we were further down, the, uh, you know, when we had a larger scale of sales, but uh, like 75% of the business was still hemp parts. What do you think about when you're going into a new category? Like you, you pretty much invented a category. A lot of people want to build consumer products how do you view like the difficulty or maybe like you think it's smarter to invent something new or like what we always say on the pod is like, you don't need to reinvent the wheel. I mean, you did in that market. How do you like think about those two avenues of like creating a new category or just iterating and being like that body armor guy, right? Who sold for 400 million. It was just like a different version of Gatorade. Yeah. Yeah. Innovation happens in, in, in a lot of ways, you know, you, you can innovate on, you know, taking the same product and putting it in different packaging. You can innovate on price. You can innovate on, we're seeing it a lot of nowadays in the natural product space, like making the healthier Pop-Tart. So we know people like Pop-Tarts and they're interested in health yeah. now. So make it with better ingredients. Um, so that that's true innovation or, you know, there's pioneering. And, and I was coming from a time, a lot of my friends were pioneering too, you know, like we, we were pioneering and making the new hemp food category, but my good friends at Guayaquil were pioneering and uh, making yerba mate, the category and Ryan Black and, one good, and the Black Brothers, good friends, uh, pioneered Samazon bringing acai to the market. So yeah. I think when you're, when you're, when you're establishing a new category or bringing in brand new product, marketing is a lot more about education. You know, uh, and, and marketing should always be education and entertainment uh, together. But uh, when you're doing a new category, you, you have to like it really explain to people in the simplest form, like, why would you consider this? Because what I learned and I learned it later on in business, but there's like 250 commonly eaten foods uh, in North America that Americans and Canadians eat. And outside that 250 commonly eaten foods, they don't really uh, go into new things that much, you know? And so you have to really get, make it easy for them to understand, like, why do I want to buy this? How do I easily incorporate it into my diet and, and become part of my lifestyle? And that is not just normal marketing is going to do that. You really got to get deep. What did that education process look like, right? Like today, the playbook is maybe you go raise a bunch of money or you spend a bunch of money on Facebook ads or, you know, like you shill on TikTok or whatever, right? Like you didn't necessarily have those tools at your disposal back then. So what was that scrappy tactics or things look like back then? Yeah, there was, there was no social media when we started. And so it was all about um, meet the consumers where they were, which was consumer shows. Uh, and that's still a strategy that can work today, especially in food and beverage. Like we got to get our products into people's mouths, our brand into their head and our products into their mouth. So we did consumer shows like, you know, health food shows, uh, yoga festivals, anywhere that there was healthy minded consumers that were getting together for the weekend to experiment and try something new. And literally at our peak, we were doing like 50 of these shows a year. And uh, wow. and we could just sample to thousands and thousands of people over the weekend. I'd tell them my story. Hey, I'm a young entrepreneur. I lost 100 pounds, totally got interested in my health. And uh, you should try this product. You know, I think you're going to like it. And, and I watched over years of going to these same shows across Canada, across the U.S., that it, things changed. Like people would ask us, well, well first in 1998, it started out. Uh, hey, am I going to get high from uh, eating these hemp seeds or whatever, you know? But after years of us putting out our information and educating people, like 
folks on the other side of the table knew the answer. Someone would ask, like, hey, what's this good for? And then the person standing beside him would be like, oh, it's a good source of protein and essential fats. Uh, and so it was just that, like, ground and pound going out there. Like, I don't think I had a weekend off as an entrepreneur because most of them were happening at these shows. And, and I loved it, you know, made some of my best friends in the industry and, and, and made lifelong consumers, lifelong customers of these shows. I'm already envisioning like you in 2020 and you're like, it's like a body transformation photo and you're attaching the product to that benefit. <laughs> like that's like a video, a viral video. Like you're that guy. Like you're yeah, always well, in the I, camera you know being like, I lost a hundred pounds. Yeah, and then you're took, like, it's because it took of this. Longer, it took longer than it should have for me to pull the pictures out of the archive. Uh, really? Cause it was probably like not until like years eight or nine. We were already like a $10 million business by then. But I did say when I put my before and after picture out, like a picture is worth a million tons of hemp heart sales. You know, people just yeah. drew in like, hey, anything's possible, right? If you if you change your for, diet, change for your one man, For one man, a picture is worth a thousand words. For another, it's worth a million hemp seeds. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, totally. No, but that's cool though, right? Like if you take into account like high school dropout, you kind of followed your curiosity here and then you had a $10 million business, right? Like forget the hundreds of millions down the road, right? Like what was that like? Was it, was it just like, Oh wow, I can't believe I even got to this point. I might as well keep running it up. Was it, you know, like how did you feel at that point? If you can kind of think back on it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I started the business, Hey, I came from a, a, a very poor family. When I started the business, I thought a million dollars was success. I wanted to be a millionaire. Yeah. So I thought if we do a million dollars, took us five years to get to our first million dollars in sales. When we hit that, I, I realized, Oh, the business that we're building, we need to be a $10 million business because we're in manufacturing and we're farming and all this stuff. And so, uh, it, it, you know, and then when we, so, but I had the, at least the vision to get to 10 million in sales, it took us 10 years to get to $10 million in sales. And when I, when I did reach wow. that, I started to then have that that next stage of the vision. At 10 million, I thought, oh, wow, there's, there's a 50 or $100 million business here. And so I think it's hard. People, entrepreneurs talk about, it. I want to build a $100 million business. Okay, well, build a good million dollar business first, you know, and then a five or $10 million business. And you'll see that next part of the path, but you can't jump forward. 99.99% uh, of the time, you can't jump forward uh, too much. People see like unicorns and think that everybody could do it, but most of the time that just doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's crazy how long it took you to get to your first million, you know? I feel like maybe if you had the tools of today, like TikTok I, shop, you yeah. probably would have got to a million like a year or two. Yeah, you know, it, it for sure. Now we're living, hey, some of the... Um, some of the strategies are still true, right? Like when I use the consumer show, but execute locally and then amplify digitally is a great strategy yeah. nowadays because then you could reach a, such a larger audience, but you're still like when you go and build a display in a store or you go to a, sh a show or an event and you show off like the feeling behind the brand, like healthy people having a good time and like what you're really offering. Now, like, you know, a million people, 10 million people can see that overnight. <laughs> Mike, I'm thinking of what you said the other day about uh, you were telling Jake Carls to like, don't just go local, be local. And I was thinking like, <laughs> <laughs> like you can't just be a, a tourist. Like you're going to Portland, you better wear that. You better look homeless. You know, like you better get, you better, you better fit in. And I was like, yeah. damn, that was probably Mike no, no, going no, to all yeah, these different me, stores. Yeah, I, I'm a like, big believer. In, he says look, in Montreal, he's got a French accent. It's like, dude, you don't even speak <laughs> French, Mike. <laughs> Local everywhere. You know what the feeling? No, but let me explain the strategy of local everywhere so that your listeners can really get into this. When you're going to Los Angeles, okay, I'm from, I'm from Canada. I'm going down to LA and I'm going to start marketing there. 
I could go and like stay in a hotel and like, and then be like a touristy entrepreneur there. But I didn't, I went and I met friends and I slept on their couch. And when I was sleeping on their couch, I said, Hey, you know what, Frank, let me take you out to dinner because I'm sleeping on your couch. So I'm putting my dollars instead of this hotel, I'm putting it to work to take Frank, to take Frank out to dinner because I'm sleeping on his couch. But Frank, let me go to, let's go to your, one of your friend's restaurants so that you can like support one of your friends with my money for sleeping on your couch. Those are some of the strategies and tactics that all of a sudden become local. Guess what? Next time I went to LA, I had a community there, a little one, and it grew bigger and bigger. And so just, just some of that thought of like when you show up somewhere be local don't don't do it like a tourist and especially if you're an entrepreneur trying to like establish yourself there what does product market fit look like in a in the world of consumer and the reason why i ask is i feel like we get such different answers like some people it's just revenue targets for other people it's like they got a deal with a big retailer i mean now you're also an investor right like you've invested in tons of successful consumer companies so I guess like for you, what, what is that signal or that sign that like you've reached PMF, like now you just need to like double down and, and scale up the intensity? Yeah. Um, scale is one thing for sure. You know, that's why I'm not an angel investor. I, I like the $10 million revenue company because I know I could help that business grow to 50 or 100 because I've done that and it's a little bit more unique for me. So for sure, when you get to a scale like that, you know, you have a product market fit or you should have a product market fit. But it really, it really determines like, it really depends on how the revenue is made up. You know, in, in consumer packaged goods, it's all about being an inch wide and a mile deep. So we want to have mm-hmm. like one product that's sold in a hundred stores and those, and, and that's the first million dollars in sales is a lot better than having 10 products that are sold in a thousand stores. And people go, I did, I made a million, I did my first million. Yeah, but there's not a good step for that million to go to 10 when you when yeah. you put the revenue like that, right? And so besides product market fit, I look through the lens of founder product fit and founder market fit, which can give you a it, it can give you a good indication of is this business really scalable? And and you know, if you want me to break that down, like if 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 you think about it this way, um you know, someone that's doing a plant-based protein uh, company, if they're a meat eater, they probably don't have product uh they they probably don't have founder product fit because you know why would a meat eater make a plant-based protein (laughs) product right yeah and also you know do they really understand the vegetarian consumer or 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 someone that's going to buy their products they really understand the market so if you get if you get a good fit between the the founder and the product the founder and the market you're more likely to get a good product market fit but people just jump right to the product market fit mike that sounds like a rockefeller quote like Son, you should be an inch wide, a mile deep. <laughs> it's true. Hey, you know what? The word, the number one thing for entrepreneurs in the CPG space, they don't know what they're doing, and so they go, "Hey, I just got a, I just got a national listing with XYZ retailer," and I, I say to them, "Yeah, but you're selling like two units in each store that you're in. You want to be selling like ten or fifteen units in each store that you're in before you go into ten times or hundred times a store." And they go, "Oh, really? Is that?" Is that, is that a good idea? Because if you, if you, if that goes wrong, you get discontinued. Now you're all of a sudden you're like a national brand that failed. Uh, yeah. and, and quite simply, you could have a great product, but you just went too early and you expanded too wide. Wait. So you mentioned LA, what were the, how, okay. So how long from starting the business did it take you to get into the U S market? So you started in Canada, how many years in, and then what regulations did you have to contend with, with a, a substance like hemp? Yeah. Well, that's a great one. Lots of story there. But we started in 1998 and we launched really early in, in the U.S., 2001. So we at t- three, three years in, we were a $250,000 business. 
and we had no sense in going to the U.S. Except I thought maybe there's more hemp consumers in the U.S. and I and I had a, a growing list of friends in the U.S. and and quite simply I wanted to hang out in the U.S. more, especially California. You know, so it was a driver for me as an entrepreneur. He just we wanted had, to be warm. Yeah, warm in the winter, the snowbird lifestyle. You know. Um, wanted to surf and, and learn how to surf and sleep on friends' couches that surfed. And I did a lot of that in, uh, in California. But there was definite roadblocks because hemp was legal in the U.S., but the, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, tried to come out literally two months after we launched in the U.S. and said hemp foods were illegal. Uh, they can't sell them which wasn't the law, but retailers and the industry got confused. And so they said, yeah. oh, we can't sell your product. We're going to go to jail. You know, and we had to take them to court uh, with the Hemp Industry Association. We literally took the U.S. government to court for three years uh, from 2001 to 2004. And we defeated them in the Ninth Circuit Court in San Francisco, which then was the first opening of the door to say, okay, I think hemp foods are here to stay. But it still took another 14 years after that for hemp to become legal in the U.S. It was it was 20 years for, for us to get hemp wasn't legal it, in the U.S. Wasn't it 2018, the farm 2018, bill? Yeah, yeah. 2018 Cause, farm cause bill. What the viewers don't know is I did a pitch comp in, in college and I pitched Tilray, which bought Mike's company. And we were talking about how that farm bill opened up like this penetration. But how did you sell in the U.S. until the farm bill then? It, because it was legal to sell. It was just the FDA tried to confuse the public and said they interpreted the law to say that, that it's illegal. No, it was illegal. You couldn't grow the crop in the U.S., but it was still legal to sell the hemp foods or textiles like hemp clothes or whatever, as long as they didn't have any THC. Uh, and so for and that's been through, through all the way through the whole history of the business. And it wasn't until in 2018, what, what happened was they legalized hemp for production. So then all then the U.S. could grow hemp and and they did in you know a number of the different states, which made the timing for us to sell the business uh, the perfect timing, because not only did, did Trump sign the farm bill that uh, that legalized hemp. But the, the, the FDA um, gave us grass status for hemp seeds. So generally regarded as safe, which means a food is, is okay by the FDA standard. We had lobbied them for five years plus uh, to give us grass status. And they did it two weeks after the U.S. legalized hemp because it's all, you know, it was all a political thing. Uh, and, and so that was the perfect time that I saw that, uh, that the world was waking up uh, and the U.S. was going to wake up to the true oppor opportunity of hemp foods and, and we should go and sell the business and find this new partner that wants to uh, to expand there. Was a lot of it due to the fact that you guys just had such a big presence within the U.S.? Like, if you think about what was in it for Tilray, like, clearly you guys kind of pioneered this path within Hemp Foods, but what were kind of their key motivations? Yeah, so, um, you know, 2018, besides the U.S. legalizing hemp, Canada legalized recreational cannabis. And so Tilray... And all of the uh, cannabis companies in Canada had huge balance sheet. They all went public and they literally yep. had billions of dollars on their balance sheet and they had to do something with it. And so yeah. their competitors were buying uh, these smaller hemp companies because it was part of their play. But what not only the U.S. market exposure, but, but Tilray wanted a non-regulated product or lightly regulated product. Mm. And so, you know, we were sold mm. in Whole Foods and Kroger and, and Walmart and Costco and, and they wanted that distribution. It was also the kicker um, at that time was CBD, cannabidiol, was thought to become uh, legal and, and saleable in the U.S., um, which 
hasn't turned out to be the case. You know, there's still restrictions from the FDA. So you don't see CBD. You see it being sold in some retailers, but not in a Walmart or not in a Costco. But that was the thought from Tilray is that if we buy this business that has all this distribution, 16,000 retail partners, uh, and has a position to sell CBD, um, not in a cannabis store, that would be very good for them. And they could take, they could, they could pay four times our sales, uh, $419 million. Wow. And so you were doing a hundred million in sales. How, how much did you guys raise for the business? Like, you know, how much, you know, did, did, you know, you guys give away on the cap table? Yeah. I mean, we were, we were a very capital efficient business for, um, we used a total of $6 million, uh, to really from the time that we started the business until we sold the majority the first time. Cause we did, we did have a private equity partner that we, that we brought in in 2015 and we sold majority, but from 1998 to 2015, we used $6 million of equity, um, to, to get to like 50 million in sales. But we had, we, you know, in Canada, there's, there's a lot of, uh, non-dilutive capital. So we, we had like $10 million of loans that were generally like low interest or interest-free loans that the Canadian wow. government sponsored because we were in manufacturing and we were building, we were building factories and we were building jobs. Uh, also like $2 million of grants that the Canadian government gave to us over that time. So that, that like one third of our capital was equity, that 6 million bucks, two thirds of it was, was government, you know, no interest or low interest loans and grants. And, uh, and I always t tell entrepreneurs, cause it's not only in Canada, the U S has it in, in different States too. Like look for the opportunities for non-dilutive capital to really expand your, mm -hmm. your balance sheet. Uh, uh, it's super, uh, it's super helpful. And then when we sold the majority, uh, to private equity, we did use them as a sponsor um, because they had they were a billion dollar fund and and uh, used used their capital to acquire our biggest competitor, uh, Hemp Oil Canada. So in 2016, we did a 42 million dollar transaction, and uh, and and that ultimately led to the 100 million in sales and our, our liquidity event. I was going to joke for a second there because uh, when we talked to Jay Carls, who you're an investor in his company, Midday Squares. Um, a big kind of reason to why he was able to succeed was he pulled in some of that non-dilutive capital yep. from Montreal, right? Like they were a big financing partner for his factory. Yep. yep. The, uh, the Quebec government there. So same thing, like gave them three, their first three and a half million dollars to build the factory. So we did the same play. Like if you're going to raise, ideally, if you're going to raise equity dollars, put the equity dollars to new product innovation, sales, distribution, growth, and, and use your debt dollars, the lowest cost possible, if you're going to build manufacturing assets, right? Capex. It doesn't, it doesn't yeah. make too much sense to raise equity and, and use it to buy machinery and build a factory because uh, it just it won't have the yeah. return on investment that you need. Yeah. Quebec, A16Z. I don't, <laughs> I, I don't know what I'm going to go with next time. Uh, Mike, uh, you know, we're not transparent about how much we made on our deal, but do you go into that? Like, is there like a rough estimate for like your net worth that we could share? Just cause like, we're curious, you know, as, yeah, as for kids. Sure. I mean, I, I, you know, it, uh, uh, it's just between me, you and the world, right? Like I, I was always a big believer. Hey, I grew up with nothing, right? I grew up with a single mom, very, very poor. So I was always a big believer in a smaller piece of a big pie. And so by the time that we got to the end of the business, I own like 10% of the company, but you know, people could do the math on that. It's still a life-changing transaction and, and yeah. has given me and my family more equity dollars, more, more family fund dollars than were ever in my business at all up. That's it, crazy. It, it totals like everyone else before me. And, and so yeah. super proud of that. And, and, you know, it's not like, um, it's not like that's a one and done for me. You know, I've, I've, I've not only grew and sold the business, but now we're having uh, success 
through the transactions of portfolio companies where yeah. I'm not operating the business, but invested in them and helping them grow. And so Soul Cuisine was my first uh, portfolio company that we went full life cycle and within three and a half years uh, grew the business 4X and had a, took it public, but then had a liquidity event for $125 million. Um, so it was my third nine figure exit. And if you look at my portfolio now, I'm building a world-class portfolio. I think there's another like handful or more of, of nine figure exits. Uh, midday squares uh, proudly being one of those just because they're they're killing it you know so I I, uh, I have that founder's eye I really want I could see entrepreneurs that are in it to win it and, and they've created something really really special and I just want to support them to uh, to win uh, I'll just jump in so Mike if I was to say hey you know here's a hundred thousand dollars I want you to make you know a nine-figure consumer packaged goods company out of it what would you do what would you focus on how would you go and build it what's the playbook Whew, nine figures for a hundred thousand dollars might be a, a, a little bit light, but um, you know, I'm looking I, for scrappy. I, I know yeah, you're the guy for it. Yeah, well, I think <laughs> no, don't give me that shit. Don't yeah, give me that shit. Yeah, it doesn't. I, I think it doesn't matter what. It doesn't matter um, how much money you have. I think. I think being scrappy is 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 really good. Looking for market niches that are are very scalable and have a have a super high impact and and is. Maybe not bleeding edge, but cutting edge to where you're going. Use an example, like look at, uh, uh, and I'm friendly with with many in the industry, but like look at Chomps, right? If you're familiar with that brand, coming into people getting back into like clean eating and protein snacking and meat snacks, and 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 they just hit it in the perfect time and to bootstrap a business, which was probably about that amount of capital, and they're very open to that, to a hundred million dollar business, right? And and so that you know. People can look and say, oh, those are unicorns that, that can make that happen. Yes, but if you get a really good understanding of market and where consumers are going and you can actually create something that offers that to them, you could be super capital efficient, um, you know, enough to maybe it's not 100000 but a couple million dollars. And, and, I'm, and I'm sure you, you stand a good chance of, uh, of creating that success if you take time out of the equation, which... Unfortunately, too many entrepreneurs want it to happen tomorrow, right? It doesn't yeah. always happen. You, you yeah. guys were successful with that in pretty short order, but you know, it just doesn't always happen like that. So you got to be, yeah. you got to be doing something that you're okay with doing for a long time. And, and, uh, cause you never know when your success is going to happen. I, I show people the J curve of Manitoba harvest growth, right? Like 10 years to get to $10 million. And then from 10 to 20 years, it went from 10 to 100. That was yeah. our vertical J curve. But if I would have dropped out in year seven, eight or nine, you know, I would have had nothing. Right. And, and so yeah. a lot of people are like, oh, I already did this for six months. It's not, it's not, it's not working out for me. Six months. That's like a, yeah. a drop in the, in the bucket for, for business timing. Are there any My other areas that catch your eye outside of health and wellness? Because I talk to a lot of consumer people in Austin. They're like, yeah, we're going to go start a supplements brand or we're going to go do this, like some weight loss related trend. Right. Cause that's again, where all the hype is. Well, I, I uh, I th I'm a big believer in staying in your lane, I guess, you know, like p successful people before me have said that stay in your lane. So I get deals all the time, like real estate deals and tech deals and all this stuff. And I have other investments outside of it. Like, but I just, I, I personally, I like the health and wellness space. Like I'm, I'm continuing to, to research on myself and, and, and play around in the space. And so I'm, I'm highly interested in it. And, uh, and I know that consumers are getting more interested in their health and, and a consumable is a great product. If you if food and beverage uh, supplements may be included into that, like people put it into their grocery basket every week, you know, or a couple times a week they're 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 buying that, or like a midday square, they're eating one every day or every other day. And so that that's you know there, there's there's a lot of opportunity for quick scale on businesses like that compared to something that you're buying once 
you know, and you could spend all this money to acquire that consumer mm. and they buy once from you. you know? So I, I, yeah. I like the consumables and, and food and beverage is, is just such an intimate part of who we are as beings that you can, you pull on the right heartstrings, you make a great product, you get your story out there and, and uh, whether you sell, you know, a million products or you sell a hundred million products, it, 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 you know, there's, there, there's that path is there. Uh, with the, uh, I guess there's been some talk about like sugar being back in. It's like, you know, uh, Smuckers has built like such a resilient business in the face of health trends. Um, you know, they were just, they just acquired the Twinkies brand and, and, you know, those are just, you know, really high velocity snacking products that, you know, some truck driver in Ohio is always getting. Um, so, you know, when we now see like GLP one, right? Like the underlying technology of Ozempic. And I've, I know it's impacted stock prices like Coke stock price. Like they're now mentioning it in earnings reports, which is fucking fascinating. But do you think that that drug will have an, a material impact on the food and beverage sector? Yeah, I think it will. You know, I've, and I've read some of the reports, uh, and so I have an understanding of it. But my, my biggest aha moment was sitting across from someone at dinner um, in, in, at, at, at when I was in Prince Edward Island this summer and he would, he was telling me his Ozempic story and he was very, very proud and bold about it saying like he was overweight, but he had already lost like 30, 40 pounds and he was, and, and he probably had another 20, 30 pounds that he wanted to lose, but he just straight up like, Hey, I love this drug so much. You know why? Because I've never been able to control my eating. I've always been a heavy kid. And now he was in his, <laughs> his forties uh, and he was like heavy through that time. And I start taking this drug and the signal turned off in my brain that I don't want to have it anymore. I don't want to have that snack or I don't want to overeat. And, and I, it had never been driven to me in a way of like having that conversation uh, with someone. So I think that will have an impact. Yeah. More, I don't think it's the healthiest thing. I think there's healthier ways. So don't get me wrong. But I think for people that, you know, we're, we're all living a, a lot of different lives. Some people want to go the farmer route and that has an impact with them. It will, it will impact uh, if people are like not consuming four or 5,000 calories in a day, they go back to their 2,000 or 2,500 that they should be. Um, that's yeah. going to have an impact on the food and beverage business. But I think, my, I think the natural and, and, and organic, the health food part of the business, the best, the food and beverage industry is, is ripe for more growth and it's going to come out of the conventional uh, food industry. Yeah. Mike, your kids are going to be like, dad, like, you know, I just got this thing and you know, I lost like 20 pounds in college and you're going to be like, son, I used hemp seeds, like used injections. I used hemp seeds. And it's like, wow, times have really changed. Hopefully not. But, you know, you never know. I, <laughs> I, I, I try not to be, uh, I don't have a purist mindset. You know, I've done, I've, I've been through that part of my journey. And so my kids, like, you know, my, my house uh, eats like a health food store. You know, everything in here is pretty healthy, but I'm not yeah. restrictive. They got, they got to live their life. They got to, they got to experiment. I just, when they say, Hey, I want to, I want a uh, A&W teen burger. Uh, and I say, I, I tell them, you know how many ingredients are in that? And they're like, 10. And I'm like, let's, let's check on the website. Oh, it's 125 ingredients in there. Why don't we go and make, why don't we go have a, a really high quality hamburger instead? Yeah. That, you know just I mean? make your own at home. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or go out to a gourmet restaurant if you want that. But, and so I'm teaching them more mindfulness, like know what's in your food. You know, we've come a long yeah. way as a society. Hey, 25 years ago when I started in the business, no one was reading food labels. They didn't even mm -hmm. have a clue. That's why our industry was so small, right? The health food part of the industry. Now people are more aware. They're like, if I eat that, it's probably going to make me feel like shit. I might still eat it anyway, but I may not, you know, and, and that consciousness is happening from people really understanding what's in the products that they're eating. Mike, what's been kind of your biggest mindset shift from, you know, hey, 
um, maybe very humble beginnings to now making it big, right? Like probably changes in how you spend, how you think about money, but most importantly, like what has that done for you specifically? Yeah, I, I think it's probably the biggest piece. I, I'm still, you know, I, uh, okay, I drive a Range Rover instead of driving a Jeep now because I, I, I wanted the Range Rover. Um, I have a nice house. It's like a wellness center that has, you know, a, a sauna and, and cold plunge and the different things that I want. So those things are really important to me. But I dress pretty casual every day because it makes me feel comfortable. Not a lot of that's changed in my lifestyle. The biggest probably change is is to be able to take the the limitations off so I dream bigger. Um, part of that's been earning the success so I know everything's possible. Um, but when I was younger, I, I thought, well, I didn't come from success, so I shouldn't dream too big. I mean, I dream pretty big and I, I made the success, but I shouldn't dream too big, right? And now I'm like, no, no, no. I could take big swings for the fence and I can help encourage other entrepreneurs to take big swings for the fence. They they, they, they shouldn't have limitations even if they just grew, because they grew up in a certain way. And that's what I wanted to share in my book, right? Like just even if you didn't come from a conventional family and go to a, go to a great school and have all this money to start your business, you you could still make a very profitable venture, right? Like, they're, they're, so don't don't limit yourself, and th and that's probably the biggest thing that I've got from creating success. What do you think for a, a young entrepreneur? Like, should they build a big business, give away ninety percent to investors, co-founders to build something truly massive, or should they just like do a solo kind of internet business and make a couple million a year and maybe it's stable, like? What, what do you think is the right path? I mean, that's, like, that's, the, that's the beautiful thing about the entrepreneurship. There's not just one right way, you know? Um, I think you have to figure out what your way is, and, and that's the challenge. And, and to do that, I suggest that people go and model uh, entrepreneurs that they want to be like. Like, look at someone's success that they've created and say, hey, if I, if I want to model that success, what does it look like for me? You know, when I, that's, when I met John Mackey, uh, the, the founder of Whole Foods, of Whole Foods, I was blown away at that time. I was like, oh, okay. And that one half a percent turned into a, a big deal when Amazon bought Whole Foods, right? But I was like, oh, that, that makes me think a lot different of, of scale where I, I work with entrepreneurs that it's, they're creating a family legacy business. They never want to sell it. So I'm like, well, don't take a shareholder if you, if you want to keep this forever. And if, even if that means you're going slower at whatever your, whatever your business path is. So it's so individual that, that again, that's what makes entrepreneurship challenging. But it's also what makes it exciting. Like you could, you could literally do it your way. Where's the goalpost for you, Mike? I mean, like for us, I'll, I'll give you an example, right? Like um, when Michael and I were building our future, it was one of those things where, um, you know, we really looked up to the guys that bought us, right? Austin and Alex. It was like, man, if we can be a, build a business like them or if we can get in touch with them, like that would be huge, Right. Now they're like partners and people we work with and talk with on an everyday basis. And now you're like, wow, if I could only be like these guys or if I could only work up to something like this, right? Is there anything like that for you? Is there someone you really admire or you would say like, if I could build this kind of business, that would be really fulfilling? Yeah, I, I'm living the life right now that uh, that my mentors were living. It's just they were in their 60s, right? So some of my mentors that I, that I grew up in the industry and helped me um, – coach me, mentor me, even be part of my board. I saw they, they were successful. They, they built some of the, some of the best brands in the industry, like, uh, like cliff bar and, and kettle chips and nature's pa like, you know, big, big businesses. And, uh, and I watched them go through their whole career and then they kind of went into the, 
semi-retirement game, which was investing in companies and mentoring them, but they're in their sixties and I'm doing that in my forties. And so I'm living the life already. I'm not, I'm, yeah. I, I know what I'm doing right now and what I've reinvented uh, Mike 2.0 to be over the last four years that I could do this for the rest of my life. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. And, and I know that I'm inspiring a lot of not only young entrepreneurs to, to, to be successful, but entrepreneurs that are already building success of, of what they want their life to look like. Because if you get into, if you get into a place where you're well connected in community and you're giving back and you're, and you're still being really successful with that, um, who doesn't want that, you know, and have all the time on your hands to really do whatever you want. Um, but I'm not, I'm not seeking like, Hey, I want to be Warren Buffett and, and have the biggest, baddest company in the world of portfolio of companies. I, I just, it, it, uh, um, cause I don't overly like to think about things feeling like work. I want to be doing this because I, I, I enjoy it. What would your advice be to young people who are looking to learn quickly? And the reason being is that I had this recent reflection where it was like, you know what? In college, I, I um, tried to start a lot of different companies, right? Didn't necessarily work out. But maybe that time would have been better spent if I just like went to one of these people that I w you know, admired and was like, hey, I would love the chance to work with you in some capacity. Do you think there's one route that actually makes you a better business builder over the other? I don't think there's one route, but I think that entrepreneurs can benefit from knowing there's there's different kinds of mentorship, and mentorship is definitely the way to, for them to uh, get faster, better at whatever they're doing. So, you know that you 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 brought up that you know the traditional mentorship, like, and I had it when I was younger, like an, an older guy or gal that's been through it before, and you could be by their side, and they'll kind of teach you uh, things. Which is, which is huge. If you have that opportunity, that's great. But there's also peer-to-peer -peer mentorship, right? Get with other like-minded entrepreneurs that are similar age to you and, and maybe non-competing businesses, but you guys are all building together. I had that with Sambazon, Guayaki, Dagoba, some of my friends who were building similar companies in the natural product space. We could learn off each other. Who's the buyer there? How did you organize your P&L? Like all these like peer-to-peer -peer things. And then, and then what I'd call more mass mentorship, right? People listening to your program, like people subscribing to, you know, different social channels. I'll pitch my book, you know, like read my book, like that, that kind of mass mentorship stuff, you can, you can gleam a lot of insights from and, and personalize it to you. So there's not one form of mentorship. There's, there's like those three big channels, but I think any entrepreneur should realize that if they, if they plug into the right mentorship, it's going to really help uh, expedite their business growth. But going, going back to your mentorship point, I think a lot of young people want a mentor, um, but it's really hard to get one. I feel like if you don't have like an already interesting project, like, you know, there's this great story where Warren Buffett asked Benjamin Graham, like the famous investor, wrote the intelligent investor. He's like, I, I will work for you for free. And Graham was like, your price is too high. Um, and I was like, damn, like that's, that's such a great quote because it says a lot about you need to also bring value to the table. And I feel like sure. one thing young entrepreneurs can do is like give a mentor some reason to live vicariously through you. Like you have to have a thesis, a strong put your foot down thesis on the world. And then you need to explain that and communicate that to a mentor to get them interested and in, in like watching your journey evolve. So I think it's tough when people try and get mentors before they have a good business idea. I, I just, I think it's, it's hard to do it the other way around. You, you got 100% right. I mean, one of the reasons I created all my mass mentorship tools is because I don't have enough time anymore to do one-on-one -on -one, uh, with people. And um, But I get pitched all the time. Hey, would you mentor me? You would be the great mentor. 
And, and I say to people, if you want, yeah, if you, if you want to, it's mentorship is a two-way street, right? There's the mentor and the mentee. Why is the mentor men- mentoring? Probably because he or she wants to give back for sure. But it's, a, it's an excitement. Like I could tell you, and Jake Carlson, I talk about this all the time, like Jake being, he's 20 years younger than me. And, uh, and people say, look, you know, Jake is, is doing what Mike was doing 20 years ago, pioneering. And I'm like, yeah, he's doing it a different way. It's very exciting for me. Not only do I love the products, I love the business I'm invested. But even before that, I was like, I want Jake to win. He's bold. He's exciting. I just get fired up when I'm around him. And he says the same thing. Like Mike gives me, you know, some, some thoughts, some, some lessons that I haven't learned before. And like, it's, it is a two way street. So I think you're right. You, you, you have to be clear with your own vision and you got to be already down the path or creating excitement. Um, and then know what you need from a mentor because a mentor is not going to solve all your problems. You know, mm-hmm. they're, they're just going to, they're going to help guide you a little bit, but you got to give just as much to them. Uh, because it is a time commitment and yeah. time is the most valuable thing. Yeah. Like there's people I admire. Um, but it's like, even though I'm in a position where I could send them an email and they'd probably hit me back. Like I got, I ain't got nothing to say to them. You know, like I ain't got, I don't got no questions. You know, it's like, you know, well, that's what I tell have... people too. And I, I, yeah. I, I've done a thousand conversations. Okay. Over the last three years, a thousand conversations with entrepreneurs, just to chat with them for like 20, 30 minutes give me two or three things you're trying to figure out. I'll give you my perspective on what I've learned in that similar situation. But then after that, they're like, well, can I, can I, can we have this next conversation? And I'm like, well, I don't have enough time to do that. And I'm spreading my love around to a bunch of people. But if you have one riddle you're trying to solve, just ping me and, and like send me a note on LinkedIn and, and I'll fire you back an answer. That's really easy. Right. But it's yeah. not like this. Can we, can we meet every month or, you know, every quarter or something like that? There, there, no one has time for that. But, but I do get often asked, like, where do I find my mentor? And I'm a big believer in that your mentor is likely playing the same game that you are. And so like going to a trade show, a conference, an event, hanging out in the same digital circles that they are is likely where you're going to find the right fit. And then just be you doing what you're doing. And you're probably going to attract those people better than like, Hey, can you be my mentor? You know? Yeah. I, I don't you see think a anyone, lot of, any- uh, yeah, I was going to say, you see a lot of founders, right? Coming your way. What are some common pitfalls almost where it's like, what might be popular advice? Um, these are things actually you should not be focusing on, or these just aren't very high leverage activities. Do you see a pattern of certain things over and over? Well, I see, I mean, the biggest mistake I see is people not understanding their, their, their business from a financial standpoint. So they could be a good operator from like, Hey, I can go and meet people and, and I'm, I'm good at networking and sales, or I've even created a good product uh, that the world needs. But if they don't understand their business from a financial standpoint and, and, and haven't shored that up around them, I see failure like nine out of 10 times because of that. And, uh, and so you don't, you just, at the end of the day, Hey, not everyone's a good finance minded person. That's okay. But it's a lot of entrepreneurs that are in that situation don't have the mindfulness to know that they're not a financial minded person. So I like to think about it as like a little personal SWOT analysis. What are my own personal strengths, weaknesses, you know, opportunities and threats coming at me. And then if, as I'm starting the business, what do I need to show up around me to be successful? Cause if you don't do that, it's, it's death by a thousand cuts in business, you know? Um, and, and, and most of it's finance related. Like you put a plan together and it doesn't, it, it doesn't have any uh, relation to your budget, to the finances. So even if you execute it and you get those new stores or you launch the new product, or you get this viral hit on social media or whatever, it doesn't translate over into the, into the financials and, and, and then you're screwed. Mm-hmm. That's literally why I brought Simeon to, to work <laughs> together. 
Well, that's the best, you know, look, when I studied as, when I was growing as a CEO and I needed to like study, like what, what does a good CEO look like? If you look at some of the best businesses in the world, they have the inside person and the outside person or front of the house and back of the house, right? Someone's got to be in charge of finance and operations and the other person like sales and marketing because they aren't really like, I'm a, I'm a finance guy by trade because my mom was an accountant and numbers are really easy for me, even though I didn't go to school for it. It's just, it's, it's easy. And, and I, and I, and I worked a lot of time when I was young to try to understand how things work. Um, so I, operations comes more easily, but I was a 300 pound nerdy kid. Like I was an introvert. I, I sales and marketing was so uncomfortable for me. You know, all of what people see from me now is years and years of practice and doing reps to put myself out there, go and talk to customers, go and talk to media, feel comfortable with that. It's all been kind of learned, uh, learned behavior. But when you're just starting out, you need to know what your weaknesses are and then, and then do something to shore them up. I've always thought that if you've had like strong business fundamental sense, you're slightly creative even, and you just work hard, like you can figure it out. Like if, if at the, at its very core, like you have like enough financial competency on like, okay, how do you make, like, what is the margin we need to sustain to build like a, a successful company over the long term, Right. And again, you're just slightly creative. I really do believe you can have a good business on your hands. Yeah, I think so too. As long as you keep it simple, you said it there with simple, right? It, it, yeah. What happens is if you get the business too complex, especially when you're small, it's really hard to understand it. You could fool yourself. And, and then if you, if that's not one of your strengths, you can get off, uh, off the mark pretty easy. Any thoughts around like playing into a trend, right? Like, again, I talked a lot about health and wellness being a trend right now, but like you've lived it for two decades, right? So it's, it's longer than just a trend, right? In today's day and age, which may last a month or two. Yeah, I mean, I think the world is continuing to wake up to uh, to health, right? It, it's it's whether that's gadgets and like, look, now you have you have like businesses that are going to be hundred million dollar businesses selling cold plunge tubs. Why? <laughs> because people want to feel better about themselves, and if you put yourself in cold water, uh, you'll feel better about yourself generally. Uh, but think about even five years ago, people were like, "What? There's no way that that could even be a business. Never mind, it's a whole industry. There's there's like a hundred companies doing it, right?" And so I think if 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 you see that, you know, from from awareness, people are just going to want to feel better. This world is working against a lot of people, people like feeling poor. And it doesn't maybe feel like that when you're in your 20s. But yeah. When you're in your 30s and you're in your 40s and you, and you age on, like, you know, you need to do a lot more work on yourself to, uh, to feel good. So um, I'm a big believer that that's never going to go away. You know, healthy eating, health modalities that you could bring into your home easily any anywhere that gives you more time back so that you can do the things that you love that that, that really fire you up um those are all those, those are all going to be long-standing trends well mike thanks so much for your time it was a fantastic conversation um so cool that you know like from one interview opens the door to the next with with midday square so um it's going to be awesome i can't wait for people where, to see this where can where can folks find you mike uh, I mean, mikefada.ca has kind of all things, uh, me, my book, my podcast, uh, uh, my speaking tour. Um, but I'm, I'm most active on LinkedIn from a social standpoint. So if you find, if you, if you go on LinkedIn, you're going to find me there on a daily basis. And, and I, I love engaging with people. So, you know, hit me up if you're on LinkedIn. And what's your criteria for, I know you're also like a, a big investor in the space. So maybe what kind of profiles do companies need to have if they're reaching out? Yeah. 
Uh, well, my thesis is, is pretty simple for investments. I love products that I have in my house that I eat on the regular basis. And, uh, and then I meet founders that I literally want to have in my house and hang out with and have dinner with and strategize with. So, and then the business fundamentals kind of got to be good after that. But, uh, you know, I'm not an angel investor, so I am looking for, for a scaled business, you know, five to $10 million in revenue already off to a start. And then, and then a business that, you know, some of my portfolio is is um, have private investments. Other ones I'm actively involved. I like being actively involved, like Midday Squares, Nuts for Cheese, Bloom, the, the parts of my portfolio where I'm helping the founders. I, I like building businesses. I'm just a recovering entrepreneur, so I can't operate the business anymore, but I can help the founder build the business. Sounds good. Have a good business and be cool. Those are the two takeaways. Cool sounds good. Yeah, you got to have the right fit. <laughs> hey, if you don't, if, if, if don't want to hang out with the person, you're not going to do much business together. That's for sure. Yeah. Fair enough. Cool. Well, thanks for your time. Stay frosty. Catch us uh, on another episode next week, next Wednesday, where we will have two founders where we break down their stories and the tactics on how they built their revenue generating business. Stay frosty, guys. Peace. Peace out, Mike. Peace to you guys.